I'm Viola Juda. I'm Will Howell. I'm Anthony Fowler, and this is not another politics podcast. There's a midterm election coming up. Politicians are trying to change the way we run elections. They're trying to implement voting regulations, either move around polling places, vote by mail. Do we want to, you know, do we want to make it easier or harder for people to vote, etc.? And there's always this concern that politicians are doing that because they're trying to help their side and hurt the other side, and they might also be motivated to help certain groups and hurt other groups and so forth. And so should we be worried about that kind of thing in uh, come November? I think we should always be worried about this kind of thing. I think that we need to be vigilant about the ways that our elections are held, but it also is something that we should be open-minded about what the evidence actually shows. These kinds of efforts precede the 2020 presidential elections. They precede Trump. And in fact, there was a huge Supreme Court case from about a decade ago, which granted greater discretion to a set of states whose actions were being overseen carefully by the Department of Justice and, and sort of set them free to do what they will. And I think at the time, there were a lot of concerns that that was going to lead to a major push to systematically disenfranchise, particularly people who are poor and, and black in the South. But Viola, you talked to somebody who looked at this, precisely this issue in, in some detail. Yes, so I spoke to Maya Komisarczyk, who is from Rochester uh, University, and uh, she has a pap paper with Ariel White called uh, Throwing Away the Umbrella, Minority Voting After Supreme Court's Shelby Decision. In this paper, they looked at, as you mentioned, Will, 2013 Supreme Court decision that basically changed some provisions of the Voting Rights Act. When the Voting Rights Act was passed, uh, certain jurisdictions were identified as jurisdictions that were really in dire situations. And those are jurisdictions that had the proportion of minorities voting was very, very low. And those jurisdictions that satisfy this formula were told that every time they changed the rules, uh, pertaining to voting, they have to first ask uh, the DOJ for approval. So they cannot implement those rules and then see what happens. They have to get the permission first. And now no longer they have to do so. So you could think that, as you will said, now the states have more discretion. And if there's any attempt by one uh, side of the political spectrum or the other to change the election, to rig the elections in their favor, uh, they will try to do that. And that might have actually negative consequences for, for the representation of the elections. I, I, I found this paper to be fascinating. Let's have a listen. Hello, Maya. I'm glad to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about your paper. Your paper is on the Voting Rights Acts, uh, and in particular on the 2013 Supreme Court decision that removed some of its provisions and on the consequences of this decision. So these uh, rules were in effect for almost 50 years. What do we know about the impact of that on uh, minority voting and minority registration and, and all those goals that the Voting Rights Act was meaning to, uh, to achieve? So the impact was enormous. You know, some of the most recent work we have on this says that registration rates for black voters in the South rose by something like 70 percent within three years of the Voting Rights Act's passage. So changes to registration and turnout were huge, right? There's some recent work on North Carolina that showed that even if we look within a state, right, for causal evidence that the Voting Rights Act actually increased registration, if we just compare the counties in North Carolina that were 
subject to preclearance or the ones that were not, they tended to have 14% higher black registration in those counties than the ones that did not. It also had some far-reaching implications kind of beyond just registration and turnout, right? There's been research, kind of old and new, that has found that black office holding in the South increased after the VRA passed. There were huge impacts on substantive representation. So things that were, you know, getting resources from higher level governments became much easier for these places that were finally able to elect legislative advocates, right, for their own interests. So there were really massive changes that resulted from these provisions in the VRA. And there's quite a bit of of evidence and old and new scholarly work about, about how that happened. So what happened in 2013? So in 2013, the Supreme Court delivered a decision about this question of whether or not preclearance was constitutional. So this preclearance formula, which identified areas that the federal government was going to target for this additional review of their voting practices and procedures, the argument was that this was an infringement upon states' rights. And in the end, in the Shelby decision, the court decided 5-4 that the coverage formula is unconstitutional. It is unreasonable to identify these areas and the criteria is outdated. What Shelby ultimately did was put a pause on any kind of preclearance or federal oversight of state voting laws. So after 2013, this decision, do we see states doing something differently, especially those states that used to be subject to preclearance? Do they introduce new legislation? Do they change the rules of how elections are being held? Right. So this was our first real empirical question in this paper. One kind of key example of this was, you know, Texas SB 14. Within literally hours, this is a bill that had been suspended in DOJ review that had not received approval. The attorney general said, oh, look, with today's decision, the state's voter ID law, which it had wanted to pass but had not been able to under suspicion of potential discrimination against voters, that voter ID law will take effect immediately and redistricting maps passed by the legislature can also take effect without approval for the federal government. Another really big example of this was North Carolina's HB 589, which passed less than two months after the court delivered its Shelby v. Holder decision. And that included a strict photo ID law, something that eliminated same-day registration, implemented restrictions on pre-registration, ended annual voter registration drives, and prohibited county boards of elections from keeping polls open for an extra hour, all of which made it harder for minority voters to vote. And this is something which, of course, in 2016 was the case that the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals said would target you know, African-Americans with almost surgical precision. So we know there's, there were these isolated cases of states really passing legislation that was racially discriminatory and implemented racially discriminatory voting laws. But our question here was, is it the case that these jurisdictions are actually doing anything systematically, or is it just these kinds of few isolated cases? So I think the first place we looked was voter identification laws. And one of the things we found empirically was, in fact, at least on that side, preclearance areas sort of relative to areas that had never been subject to federal oversight were really much more likely to not necessarily pass new voter ID laws if they'd never had them before. But if they had voter ID laws, they were much, much more likely to strengthen their their voter ID laws. We also looked at some other kind of potential forms of activity that could be signs of restricting access to voting for minority voters. So one example of that was 
purging the voter rolls. So purging the voter rolls is a perfectly normal process that states undergo, right? They will purge their voter rolls because voters pass away, voters move away. There's lots of reasons you might want to clean up your voter rolls. But states can also be aggressive if they want to, really aggressive about purging the voter rolls in a way that actually captures voters who are living in the state and perfectly eligible to vote. So there were some lawsuits in Georgia, for instance, where the state identified just based on kind of name duplication, if you had a common name or something, and would send you a letter that said that they were going to purge you from the voter rolls because they found you. We think of that as potentially discriminatory practice. So that's one that we looked at. We also looked at rates of rejection for provisional ballots, right? Sort of same logic. If states are really, really overzealous about rejecting provisional ballots from people who filed provisional ballots precisely because they didn't have the right form of ID or they went to the wrong polling place or something. If you reject lots of these provisional ballots or you're really aggressive about doing it, that's potentially a tool by which you might want to be disproportionately targeting provisional ballots filed by certain voters from certain areas. And that's potentially a sign, not necessarily, but potentially a sign that you're engaging in some of this. And finally, we also looked at the rates of poll workers who are employed in various areas, right, for the size of the county in terms of the registered voters that are living in it, right? One thing that if you wanted to potentially suppress votes that you might do is restrict the resources that are going to counties, certain counties or districts, if you're the secretary of state. So we worry that this is also potentially kind of discriminatory voting practices. So these are some of the outcomes that we looked at to see if Shelby was having an impact in terms of the types of things that formerly preclearance areas chose to do. And we did find some evidence that formerly preclearance areas were purging their voter rolls a little bit more aggressively than non-preclearance areas, but not much evidence that they were you know, providing fewer poll workers or that they were rejecting provisional ballots, ballots at a much higher rate. So on average, you find that those areas that were subject, that used to be subject to preclearance are making changes that could be perceived as discriminatory. But do you have a sense that they are just catching up because preclearance requirement that used to be a little bit less aggressive? than they would be otherwise, that other states uh, were? Or is it that they are exceeding what other states uh, have been doing? On the voter ID side, they tend to be exceeding what other states have been doing, right? You actually see that once Shelby passes, you know, some of these preclearance areas are going over over and above what we've seen as kind of group averages in, in some of these places. So this all sounds pretty bad. So this seems like the fears of the left have uh, materialized. But you didn't stop there. You, you looked at the measures that the outcomes that we uh, presumably or care about the most, not just the regulation, but how much people vote and, and to what extent voting uh, by minorities differs from voting by uh, non-minorities. So, so what do you find? Yeah, so here's the crazy part, right? The worry on the part of the voting rights community, justifiably, you know, ex ante, once the decision passed, was that there would be much lower registration and turnout among minority voters in these areas. And I say that, you know, this is justified in the sense that these jurisdictions rushed to implement, you know, subtler limitations on the way voters work. They consolidated counties, they changed districts, they converted positions. So we sort of knew that at the very beginning, there was a lot of appetite and a tremendous effort exerted in the South to counteract the VRA as much as possible. We did exactly this kind of difference in difference approach where we compared the trends in black and Hispanic voter turnout specifically in these areas that had been subject to oversight to the areas that had not before and after Shelby. 
And if anything, rates of registration turnout for Black and Hispanic voters actually went up slightly, right? Like something on the order of, you know, one to two percent in preclearance areas relative to non-preclearance areas. So all of these fears didn't directly manifest in the registration and turnout numbers that we looked at. So what do you make out of that? Were you surprised? What's the explanation for those seemingly surprising and, and counterintuitive results? Yeah, so we were surprised. I will say that we were, we were surprised to see that. One possibility is that, oh, you know, preclearance never did anything and it didn't matter. I don't think that's the answer precisely because preclearance had a huge amount of effect, you know, in 1965 or really when federal examiners entered and when jurisdictions started submitting election laws for review. And now the climate has sort of shifted in a way that even jurisdictions that might want to modify voting laws and procedures in a really discriminatory way have sort of internalized that they have to opt for really subtle restrictions, that they have to opt for things that they can justify on other grounds, like voter ID laws that are potentially palatable to voters in the government in the sense that they are really restricting people who shouldn't legally be voting federally or at the state level, and they're perfectly reasonable and they're not applied in any kind of discriminatory way or something like that. The third kind of possibility is that actually these changes to voting practices and procedures maybe did have some kind of downward effect on turnout and registration. But what happened instead was that voter mobilization organizations on the ground picked up on this and really mobilized voters. Some of the things that we looked at to potentially get at that was some survey data in the cooperative election study, as it's called now, where people could report whether or not they were contacted by a party organization and asked to turn out or vote. And we actually showed some evidence that you, if you are a non-white voter in formerly preclearance areas, you were more likely to be contacted by somebody after Shelby to get you mobilized and vote. Another thing we looked at that might be consistent with that was we thought, well, if we think what's going on is that there's counter-mobilization, we should see some evidence that it's really new voters that are signing up, right? Like if people are being mobilized for the first time, then it's the folks who are you know, too young or haven't been engaged enough who are finally kind of activated. And so we looked at new registrations, people who have registered within the last two years of a particular election cycle. And those are people who have either, you know, moved to a place within two years or finally recently decided to register. While we don't see a huge change there, you know, statistically speaking, we find a result that's not distinguishable from zero, but we find a positive point estimate, which is at least consistent with the idea that even though it's potentially really small, we see slightly more newer voters in formerly preclearance areas, which tells us that more people are kind of registering. Another thing that we've done is look at some other survey data from the Survey on the Performance of American Elections that similarly asked people, well, do you think that your vote is being counted properly? Do you think that all these things are being filed correctly? And if if you're a voter of color in some of these preclearance areas, you're more likely to express some concern about the idea that your vote is being filed or counted, which we think might be some evidence, right, that these voters have gotten the message that voting rights are imperiled or that incumbents in these areas are now going to potentially start encroaching or something like that. So, so maybe, maybe one question, you know, this is more speculation, but so what do you think about all this media frenzy that was uh, surrounding the decision? Do you think these were legitimate fears and uh, based on, you know, actually 
in partly somehow justified by what we saw, by the, by the changes in the rules that we saw? Or do you think it's just, uh, you know, it's just the media landscape that we have today, but they should have stopped and thought a little bit about whether the consequences were going to be as dire as they thought they would be? You know, to the extent that the media attention forced people to take a really careful look at voting rights, I think that's positive, even if that entailed some potential hysterics about what the impact might be. Certainly there were statements in there that were like, oh, these voter ID laws are definitely going to disenfranchise lots and lots of people, which is not necessarily obvious. But voting rights and access to the ballot are incredibly important, and they're still incredibly important and still contested. So to that extent, media attention on what was really a pretty monumental Supreme Court decision is warranted, right? We should be looking and I won't claim that our study is by is anything close to exhaustive or final, but we should be looking for the types of changes that potentially dilute the value of votes that are cast that target certain voters. They're potentially going on and I think that in a world where incumbents are forced into this territory of trying to pass subtle restrictions so they won't get sued or something like that. The other danger that we face is that incumbents change voting laws in all of these kind of subtle ways that we're not looking for without more media attention. And you get a much less democratic climate in a less obvious way, right? So this is something like I, you know, I have other work where I look at the conversion of elected offices to appointed ones. But there's another Supreme Court decision that says that you can't actually sue about the possibility of converting offices under Section 2. So this is one where if you wanted to change a bunch of formally elected offices to appointed ones and appoint people to prevent elections, this is something that you could do. And we should definitely be paying attention. So that to that extent, I think the media attention is warranted even if their direct predictions about what would happen to turn out immediately is right. And if anything, media attention keeps potential litigants aware in cases like North Carolina where there wasn't really much question about discriminatory intent or impact. So, you know, we should be watching carefully. Well, thank you so much. This was, this was great. Thank you, Maya. Thank you for having me on. This has been really great. Viola, so the paper is trying to identify the effect of the Supreme Court case, which lifted these pre-clearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act. It left all the other dimensions of the Voting Rights Act. They still are in place, but it's the, it's the dropping these pre-clearance provisions. And what we want to see is what the downstream effects of doing so are on the laws that are passed in these counties and states um, and turnout rates uh, by, by different groups. And can you summarize for us, like, what, what are the high-level findings that come out of it? So the findings are somewhat surprising and not surprising at the same time. Uh, the 2013 Supreme Court decision had no effect on the outcomes that Maya was looking at, namely deregistration by minorities and the voting percentages uh, by minorities. The percentage of registered Blacks and Hispanics that voted in the elections after 2013 slightly increased. Perhaps we could have expected worse than they actually uh, improved. 
There is something, though, that they uncover, which is of interest, which is that uh, there is an increase in the strictness in voter ID laws. That is, in the aftermath of Shelby, the states that were lifted um, from these preclearance obligations were disproportionately likely to pass stricter voter ID laws, um, which would be consistent with the kind of worry that, uh, that folks on the left had in the aftermath of decision, because they, that's the first step, make it more difficult to vote. And here, and look, they're doing that right out of the gate, and there's evidence of that in the paper. It's just that that then doesn't translate into the thing that we really care about, which is, are people registering and are people voting? One interesting fact uh, that, that I learned from the paper is that the Supreme Court left the room open to Congress uh, finding a different formula and selecting some set of states, again, for preclearance purposes. But this formula has to be based in reality. So if it turned out that we uh, remove those uh, preclearance provisions and then suddenly certain states actually uh, you know, diverge from the rest of the country and we have minorities being repressed and so on, it's okay for Congress to step in again. So it wasn't that they were completely throwing the umbrella uh, you know, in the garbage and moving away and burning it forever. They said, I can always go back if I get, start getting wet. I can always go back and grab it. Which is not great, but you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's something. It's interesting that Congress hasn't, hasn't done that. I mean, of course, we've got lots of political gridlock and so forth, it's hard, but Congress could have said, you know, maybe this should apply to every state in the country. Maybe this should apply to the whole country, that DOJ preclearance should be a requirement for any major change to, to elections. And I haven't seen anyone seriously propose that. There's just, there aren't the votes to pass either a, a targeted or a universal pre-clearance system, given the levels of gridlock and, and the likelihood of a filibuster. Isn't that the most straightforward answer? I mean, there's another argument, which, which might be that uh, a universal pre-clearance might be also found unconstitutional, no? because states have the right to organize their elections, federal elections, uh, the way they want. The federal government is not really supposed to intervene too much, and this universal pre-clearance seems like a pretty heavy intervention and pretty heavy burden put on states. Uh, so, so I think that might be another uh, reason for that. So it's justifiable only when there's a, a, a demonstrated record of wrongdoing, like constitutionally. Exactly. Maybe. Maybe. I wonder, do you guys think, so I mean, we have these findings on offer, uh, which is that there are no negative effects and possibly some slight positive effects associated with this Shelby decision on registration and turnout. Um, but look, these... Counties and states are different from other counties and states. We know that they are. That's why they were targeted with these provisions. And so the thing to do is not to simply compare mean rates in the aftermath of the decision between those who were affected and those weren't. So like, what does the paper do instead? So the basic design here is the differences and differences design. So they are the authors are comparing changes, changes in the states that previously were, were covered under preclearance to changes in other places that weren't previously covered under preclearance. And so we're not looking at differences in levels. We're not saying things are different in South Carolina than they are in Colorado. We're asking, are the trends around this period different in South Carolina than, than in Colorado? And, and it looks like the trends are pretty similar. I mean, I personally, I think, I think that's a more or less convincing strategy. I mean, it's mostly the South that's covered by, that's covered by this you know, section of the, of the VRA, with a few exceptions. Um, and it's, it's almost all of the Deep South, again, with a few exceptions. 
is, is there, are there reasons the South is trending differently than the rest of the country? I think you could probably tell a story. Other, other changes, other demographic changes, things like that, that you could, you could tell a story if you wanted to. And you might like to see finer comparisons, like let's compare, you know, actually North Carolina is partly covered and partly not covered. So you could imagine comparing different parts of North Carolina. You could compare, you know, you could compare Virginia to West Virginia to get a finer comparison, things like that. They do, you know, they do have in the appendix, I think, a nice test, which is what if we did a triple differences design? So instead of instead of just compare the trends for the covered and non-covered places, what if we also compare white and non-white voters within those states and see if there's some racial motivation to some of these policy changes. Let's see if the, the gap in participation between white and non-white voters is changing differentially in these places. And when they do that, they actually get a very precise null result, like almost exactly the same trends for white and non-white voters in the, you know, the difference, the, the differential trend for white and non-white voters is basically the same in the VRA covered and the non-covered places. So I find that to be somewhat convincing evidence that probably um, probably probably we should believe this result and probably there's really not a whole lot going on. The policy didn't do a whole lot. I mean, the trends aren't different from one another. The levels are. I mean, it's worth noting that registration rates and turnouts in these affected regions are systematically lower for Hispanics and African Americans. Um, but when you're trying to back out what the effect of this particular decision is, it appears to be null or possibly positive. So that it isn't that they do nothing in the aftermath of it. They appear to be doing some things differentially. That is, passing these stricter voter ID laws, but that doesn't spell systematic disenfranchisement. There's no evidence of that here. Yeah, so it's really interesting. So when you look at the voter ID laws, for example, and we talked about this issue uh, on our podcast already a few times, but when you look at the voter IDs, ID laws and you compare the jurisdictions that were subject to preclearance to the remaining ones, uh, those jurisdictions actually were more likely to have voter ID requirements uh, than uh, the rest of the country. And then, interestingly, the moment uh, the 2013 decision uh, takes place, you see a huge jumps, jump in this, those jurisdictions towards implementing even stricter ID laws. Yeah, why is that? Yeah, what's going on? It, you know, I, I guess you can have two explanations. One explanation is very sincere. It's like those jurisdictions truly believe that voter ID laws are important, that they prevent fraud and so on. Or you can think those jurisdictions believe that voter ID laws are going to disfranchise uh, certain types of voters, and that's in favor of people who are actually implementing those laws. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, we don't observe what their taste is, like what their, what their motivations are. Those are unobservable to us. We just see that the moment that they're freed up to do something, sure enough, they do it. And you've just identified two possibilities. One is that they do it because they have concerns about fraud. Um, another one is, is that they, they're, they're going to be disappointed by the findings of this paper, uh, because they were hoping that it would deliver disenfranchisement, but uh, it appears not to have. But either way, the results suggest that at least some states believed that it would be easier to implement voter ID laws after, after Shelby than before. Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discuss on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Capital Isn't. Capitalism uses the latest economic thinking to zero in on the ways that capitalism is, and more often than not isn't, working today. From the debate over how to distribute a vaccine to the morality of a wealth tax, capitalism clearly explains how capitalism can go wrong and what we can do about it. 
Listen to Capitalism, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. I'm curious to hear what you know your thoughts are, what other people's thoughts are on preclearance. Um, even you know we might think there are good reasons to have something like preclearance, precisely because there are always going to be things that. Congress can't anticipate. You know, we passed the Voting Rights Act, and we can anticipate some discriminatory laws, but we can't anticipate all of them. And so, let's give the DOJ some discretion and say they get to review your changes. And I think that makes a lot of sense in a world in which the DOJ is less politicized than the state legislators. But do we believe that that's true? Do we believe? I mean, maybe are we living in some world now? And certainly, you know, we we certainly talk about the. Uh, the ju- the court says if they are highly politicized these days, is it fair to say that the 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 Department of Justice is less politicized than the than the Secretary of State in your state? And if if not, then why would we have any faith that the DOJ is going to do a better job adjudicating these things than the state legislature or the county elections officers, et cetera? Um, I'm just, I don't know, do we, have any, do we have any thoughts on that? And, and should it, maybe it matters a lot who's president and which DOJ we're talking about and so forth, but... Um, Doesn't that, you, I think you just answered your question, right? It has, to, it has to be the case that there are going to be some departments of justices under some presidents that are unbelievably politicized. And in those instances, there's going to be at least some states that are going to be less politicized in terms of their election administration. And so making, if you were to have, a thing that you would worry about, we were talking about earlier, what if we had universal preclearance, I think you would worry about is that in, in those instances, that would provide an opportunity for a politicized DOJ to extend its reach into a, a less politicized state election um, administration. And that would be problematic. Now here, they're starting from a case where these are, presumably they got it right, these are the biggest offenders when, when it comes to systematically disenfranchising um, minority voters. Um, and so that preclearance was going to be, at the margin, an improvement. But universally, that can't, can't possibly be the case. So, so Maya, you know, raised an interesting point during the interview that, that uh, you know, no matter her results, it's really always a good idea to really pay attention to what changes are being made. And and I think you know I wonder whether moving the preclearance out of uh, DOJ actually uh, increases uh, the spotlight that certain changes will get. So right now you know you go to DOJ and DOJ is aligned politically with you. They are going to approve changes that uh, perhaps otherwise would be more scrutinized by the media and would be perhaps uh, more, more scrutinized by the um, voting rights organizations, organizations fighting for voting rights. They might be, perhaps they would uh, they would sue uh, the, the states uh, implementing those laws. And right now, if if uh, a state uh, gets preclearance from the DOJ, I, I can see how this actually diminishes the incentives to sue uh, a change, certain states and, and, and perhaps removes the um, the spotlight. So maybe that's a minor thing, but but that might be one of the effects of this entire change. Yeah, I think that's an interesting argument. It's certainly theoretically possible that, of course, there's, a, there's some equilibrium response by activists on the other side. And so maybe Shelby was, in some sense, a bad thing for democracy in that it, uh, it allowed states to implement things that made it harder for people to vote. And then a bunch of people on the other side had to work work even harder to get people to vote. And on net, it kind of washes out to a more or less null result. 
They do, to their credit, I think they, they try to test that conjecture. They look, for example, they look at survey data where they ask people, were you contacted by a campaign? And they claim to find some suggestive evidence that indeed this decision caused non-white voters in the affected states to be more likely to be contacted by campaigns. Although the effect, the estimated effect is pretty small and it's not statistically significant. So I personally, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't, it, that that evidence doesn't shift my beliefs a lot, but at least at least at least a possibility. Um, so I think it's an interesting possibility, and it's one that certainly for any voter ID law study that we've talked about, maybe one reason the results are null is precisely because of this kind of mix of things. On net, I personally still think the effect of that backlash is probably pretty small. That probably the the first order effects of the voter ID laws are pretty small, and whatever backlash effect there is is also pretty small. And one reason for that is something we've talked about before in previous episodes with other authors is that these voter ID, you know these voter ID laws don't actually affect that many people. Almost everyone has an ID, and the people who don't, it's a tiny share of people, and those are probably people who weren't likely to vote anyway. And so. If you had to guess, probably, probably it's the simpler story. It's kind of if you, you know if you use Occam's razor, you would just say it's probably the simple story, which is that uh, these these things just didn't have much of an effect to begin with. Her explanation for that is, is that the voter ID laws presumably might do some harm, but they're offset by counter mobilization efforts. That is, when the stricter voter ID law is unleashed, uh, the those who want to ensure that um, Hispanics and African Americans actually are registered focus their energies and, and resources, and they overcome this kind of setback, these legal setbacks that are, are being adopted at the state level. I'm keen to hear what you two think of, of, of that particular explanation and the evidence on offer in the paper for it. I think there are many possibilities for you know, what happened over time. So Maya talks in her paper about the fact that when VRA was implemented, uh, there was uncertainty, or there could have been uncertainty on the parts of certain states, to what extent the federal government will, uh, will actually enforce this uh, rule. So in that world, I can see how preclearance would help the, the, the federal government to establish that they are serious about enforcing these rules. Uh, and, and once we learn that the federal government is serious about that, then, you know, this preclearance is no longer needed. Of course, that raises a question, what might be long-term effects of removing this preclearance? And is it possible that somehow there might be a signal that, or, or, or the states might believe that the federal government will no longer pay so much attention to what's happening with the voting rules and, and we might end up not really removing the VRA, but but not using the full force of it. Maybe. I mean, it could be. I mean, it could. I mean, it matters in the sense that it does affect what changes are, are happen and what laws get implemented. But it might be that those are pretty. Those have pretty small effects anyway on the things we actually care about. It could be right. It's striking, though, right? Because we have all this evidence that the adoption of the VRA, the preclearance provisions themselves, being contributing factors, had a massive impact in shifting turnout rates in the mid-1960s. Registration rates and turnout rates for Hispanics and African-Americans took off in the aftermath of its adoption. And so what we have then is a story in which once you've enfranchised these uh, populations, that then you lift the protection that we don't then revert back to the pre-VRA status quo, which was uh, abominable. 
And, and so all the effect is in the, the initial treatment, the, the initial protection that's being extended. And that after having it in place for 50 years, one story that one could tell is the available evidence suggests that it did its work. Precisely because the evidence of a counter-mobilization isn't all that strong, it suggests that either because um, people who are living in those districts feel or, or they're themselves offsetting the effects of the laws by feeling angry about them and making a point of, damn it, I'm going to turn out to vote, or they're just not having much of an effect at all. So Viola, what do you, what do you take away from this paper? I absolutely love the paper. I think it was a very big decision. It was highly contested, uh, highly discussed in the media. Uh, here someone comes, uh, does a very careful job uh, trying to see what the effects uh, were. And I think it's it's interesting that we find no effects. I think this is consistent with other research that we discussed uh, on the podcast. You know, we should hope that there will be more and more papers like this coming later to see you know, indeed, whether those null results persist over time. And, uh, you know, this, mo- <laughs> this is maybe too long for a two-minute two uh, uh, ending, but this morning I was listening to a podcast about uh, Hungary. And as you know, Hungary slid into something that's being called autocracy. And uh, the person on the podcast was saying that this happened not because uh, Viktor Orban was really violating the law. It's because he was changing the law on the margins in, in, in the direction uh, that would benefit him. And we end up where we end up. So it is very important to keep watching what's happening, how the rules are being changed. Um, because even though we found that so far they haven't really affected, they haven't, they don't seem to have affected the outcomes in the U.S., uh, you know, you never know when they will. So I don't, I wouldn't want us to, to sort of take this paper and be lured into some peace and uh, satisfaction. I, I think we should, we should be alert. I completely agree. I actually think there are lots of very real threats to the health of our democracy right now. Um, and the importance of this kind of work is that it allows us to train our attention on what matters more and less. It's trying to take a hard-nosed empirical accounting of where the real threats are and, and where, but where, at least in the short term, the effects aren't so acute. Because if what you do is you say everything is overwhelmingly important, it puts you into a position where it's impossible to do much of anything of consequence. I, I'm gonna, I want to continue to think about why is it that something that was adopted now 60 years ago that had such a profound impact on the electorate when we then lift some provisions of it no longer have an effect is an interesting question. Um, and I think we, we floated a couple of suggestions for why that might be so. The paper struggles with this, but I don't think we have a final answer on it. And I think it's a really interesting one. Yeah, I agree with all that. I think this is really is a really good paper. I mean, it's it's a it's in some ways. I mean, it's the kind of paper when you read it and you think, "Oh, I wish we. I wish I had thought to write that paper because it's such an obvious, such an obvious pressing question, an important question. It's like a a real debate between you know John Roberts and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and there's a and there's a very clever there's a very clever design kind of built right in. Like the, what the Supreme Court did was actually very convenient for researchers, which is we're gonna we're gonna take away this policy that differentially affected different jurisdictions. So I think it was a great paper. It's very carefully executed. It's very carefully done, and it's very thorough too. I think they don't just say bang here's the result. They stop and say okay what's going on? Let's explore different mechanisms and explanations and so forth. And all of it's really interesting. And I'm and I'm left with the kind of reassuring conclusion that 
uh, it turns out that uh, we didn't need, you know, it doesn't look like preclearance is having a big effect, which is somewhat good, which is a which is a somewhat pleasing result because that would otherwise suggest that there were lots of election officials that would like to disfranchise people and mitigate them from voting, and it turns out turns out even if they wanted to, they're they're not successfully doing that. So that that turns out to be a reassuring result. Um, and so I'm yeah, so I'm. I'm somewhat pleased by the result in the sense that I think it's it's a good thing for democracy that they found what they found. Um, it probably also is a good thing that this thing that this this thing that we had for for 50 years we no longer needed in the same way that maybe we did you know in in the 60s. So that's a good thing. Um, but it's a really interesting, important paper on an interesting topic, and it's and I'm glad we talked about it. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodup. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.